We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Where would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. The Bills make me wanna. Car right back to Washington. He lost the football. Blockers, Milano will go! Touchdown, Buffalo! Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rock Pal Report Podcast. I am your host, Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Kruger, and that was Andrew Catalan from CBS Sports. Damn it, it feels good. Uh, not really. I had to drink a Seagram's because of that. <laughs> it was coconut-flavored, folks. It was teal. Teal blue. It Just looked <laughs> like the water you see at mini golf courses. <laughs> it, was, it was so gross. Chris is now 2-5 and five on Seagram's bets for this season. It's the absolute worst. That, I mean, that, that play right there changed the game for Buffalo in the second half. Folks, I got to tell you, I'm sitting here on a, on a Tuesday night. Halloween. Happy Halloween to everybody. You're probably out trick-or-treating with your children right now. Um, I got to level with you. Today has been a day. Okay, this The past two or three days have been an emotional roller coaster for the Buffalo Bills. Can we just, before we like get into today, can we just, just cover something right quick? And what's that? Oh, that's right, folks. First podcast to hit 500 downloads on Podbean. Yep, our episode, Jesus. From, our episode from October 4th. We have other. I think it was just you and me. We didn't like have any guests. Like, no. what 500 people just want to listen to you <laughs> and me? It's currently sitting at 502 downloads. So thank between you to that, everybody that's downloaded that and all it. of our traffic over at Grandstand Sports Network. Our show is really taking off. But it's because of you guys. You guys are the ones who show up and listen to me. I'm just a guy with a beer in my hand who wants to talk football. And no, no, not a, not a beer, a 12-pack in your hand. You quiet down over there. I want to say a heartfelt thank you to everybody out there who supports this show. God bless you. That's GrandstandSportsNetwork.com, RockPellReport.Podbean.com. Jesus Christ. So much has happened. Our show kind of came, my show planning came off the rails. There's a running joke here. 
that every Tuesday before we record, I put together a rundown, and Brandon Bean finds a way to ruin it. Well, you forget every Tuesday that it's their off day. This is when they bring people in, and then. But the caveat is today's uh, NFL trade deadline, and of but course we don't think that that anything happens on this day. <laughs> it never has. And of course, things come off the rails. So we're going to jump right into it with this week's gigantic trade deadline edition of the Bills News Update. Kelvin Benjamin, welcome to Buffalo. If I had told you in 2000, in fact, let's just take it back six months. If I had told you at the end of the NFL season last year, before the draft, that come the middle of the NFL season the following year, Sammy Watkins would not be a Buffalo Bill, but Kelvin Benjamin would be. You would have called me an insane person. That would have been a Seagram's bet. That would have been a Seagram's bet. And yet, it, it this is the reality that we all now live in. Kelvin Benjamin has officially been traded to the Buffalo Bills from the Carolina Panthers. I mean, that's a when you think about the psychology around making a move like that, you know, this is a front office that has really this offseason made most of its moves to be, we're going to put together a team culture, we're going to build with a group of guys who want to work hard and fight for each other, and we're going to plan for the future while we do it. This move is very strictly a win-now move. Chris, I don't, I don't know how else to cut it. You don't go out and trade. You've seen what there is to see. You've brought in street-free agents like Deontay Thompson who have shined for you. You've brought in guys who have somehow a play, played above their abilities. And yet you go out and you make this move. You only make this move if you actually feel like you have a chance to win football games. And... I don't know, do something meaningful with these last eight games. I, I'm, I'm still not buying in. <laughs> I, You're still not buying We could be, we got two losses, Carolina says, we could be nine and two. I'm not buying in. You're until, not buying in until? Not, it, not buying in until it says we're in the playoffs. All right, well, I'll tell you, there's a lot of interesting facets around this Kelvin Benjamin trade. Yesterday, the media met with Brandon Bean. And asked him at practice, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? What do you think about the trade deadline? And he told them, listen, I don't I don't have anything. Okay, I don't have anything working. And then today he trades for another team's number one wide receiver. Now, this is what Brandon Bean himself had to say about the timeline of the trade, which really kind of explains how it all unfolded. Uh, we spoke a little bit yesterday and then this morning via text, but I really didn't sense... Uh, at practice that anything was going to go down and uh, we did circle back up around two and then we circled back up around 325 and it got serious um, by 340 it was pretty serious knowing we had 20 minutes to uh, agree on, on the deal. So what you said was right then because we were all, it was, that was way after we had talked to us. Anyway. I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah, I would have just said no comment. Brandon Bean Press conference, you'll find that at buffalobills.com. Now, there's a couple interesting takeaways from this. First and foremost, Brandon Bean went into today, if you believe him at his word, which I feel like you almost have to, he came into today not looking to make that trade. You know, there was rumors floated around on Twitter that they had offered a second-round pick for Jarvis Landry. 
and that the Miami Dolphins refuse to trade him within the division, which I can I can understand. You have to play. Those I would not trade out. anybody within the division. No, no, no decent GM would because if he goes to that franchise, I wouldn't even trade Vlad Dukas in the division. <laughs> what I can say is this: you look at that and you say, okay, well, there's some rumors of interest here, but nothing was concrete. Nothing was being planned, and then to Bean's to Bean's explanation. Things just because he's from Carolina, he's got an open rapport with Marty Herney. So he and Herney speak, they call, they text every now and again. And then this talk just kind of kind of got to bubbling and it got to boiling. And then the next thing you know, the pot roast was done and this trade was completed right before the deadline. And I think that that's interesting to me just seeing how he would kind of walked into this like, hey, I'm not going to make a move unless I think that the move is worth making. Who who even makes that call? Like, how do you who makes that call first? Was it Marty? Was it Bean? It's probably Bean. Just to be like, hey, what would it cost? He was, and you probably think you go you when go, you, listen- you you probably go Panthers because you used to work there, and that's probably your easiest route to pick somebody off in such a short time. Well, here's the thing: if you listen to the full press conference, Brandon Bean goes on to explain that he was central. He was one of the central figures in scouting Kelvin Benjamin. He knows the player he's getting. He knows that he's a big physical wide receiver, that he's got a fierce competitive streak, he's an excellent run blocker, and that even though he's not a speed guy, he's open when he's not open. So he he brings nothing but good things, and he brings a dimension to this passing attack that we haven't had ever. I don't know in the six, last... 6'5". Five. 6'5". Five. 6'5", five doesn't run a 4'4", four, four, but you can throw the ball up and he'll go get it. Yeah. We haven't had that. At least Jordan Poyer won't be hitting him. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see what their first meeting in the locker room will be like. Like, hey, remember when you laid me out in the back of the end zone, you jerk? And though I'm sure that they'll I'm sure they'll just all just agree that it's between the lines and that they're they're buddies and everything. But the second interesting thing to me when it comes to Brandon Bean from that quote, and the reason we played it, is because you heard him talking to WGR five fifty Sal Capaccio. And Sal said, Okay, well, this timeline seems to make sense because at practice yesterday, when you told us nothing was imminent, you didn't know that this trade was going to happen. And his response was, no, I'm not going to lie to you. I would have just said no comment. He's giving, he is an open book. That's what he's telling us with that reaction. He's telling the media, listen, I'm not going to bullshit you. If I'm thinking about something, I'm going to tell you no comment, but that no comment is going to mean something. Versus me just coming out and telling you, hey, nothing's happening. I, I love it because it's just this straightforwardness and just some clear – like you can tell these moves aren't just made to make them. They're made with some thought. They're made with an eye towards now and the future. I mean, I, I just think it's incredible. And I can't wait to get this big son of a bitch out there on the field running around for the Buffalo Bills. On the flip side of this, the Marcel Darius trade. Can we talk about this for a second? Let me get another beer because I'm going to need this. On Friday night, I'm getting ready for a Halloween party. I'm putting on some shitty makeup to round out my, uh, if anyone there out here is a fan of The Walking Dead, to round out my Negan costume because I forgot that I wasn't going to shave. I told myself, don't shave for a few days so you can get that grizzled kind of fuzzy look going. Well, I forgot. I shaved every day that week. So I stopped, I picked up some makeup, I started throwing it on my face. I'm in the bathroom with my hands covered in shit, 
and my fiance opens up the door and informs me that Marcel Darius has been traded to the Jacksonville Jaguars for a sixth round draft pick. And then she walks away because she knows what's about to happen. What preceded was a stream, like a stream of consciousness style profanity tirade that would rival anything that the father from a Christmas story could ever put together, no matter how shitty his furnace was. To say that I was livid would be a gross misuse of the term, Chris. It's just like you during a game. Like, you just get that fandom going, and you just blow your stack. You don't even take time to break it down at all. There's no rationale. It's just... just Emotion. Ah, it's pure yelling. emotion. You just start you just start yelling. So I went to my party and I drank my face off. And I fielded a shitload of questions from my friends about what I thought. And the more I drank, the sharper my criticism got. I I, I cussed I, I at one point I strung together the analogy that painted Brandon Bean is the type of guy who sits down at a blackjack table, wins big, you know, when it came to trading, wins big in his first few hands. But then doesn't leave the table fast enough and ends up losing his shirt. I was disgusted by the trade. We gave away a former Pro Bowl talent and a player who, when he is plugged in, when he's at his best, is one of the most dominant defensive tackles in the NFL. And we gave him away for next to nothing. Hey, that could become a fifth. (laughs) Woo, I gotta take a deep breath here. So... I sobered up on Saturday and really kind of dug into the nuts and bolts of the trade. And I have to begrudgingly agree that this is a good thing for the Buffalo Bills. It makes sense. Last week, Greg Trelone and I were here talking about defensive tackles in a 4-3 scheme and how none of them, once you pay them enough, there is no way they will ever produce to equal their pay. We came to that conclusion together just talking it through. So considering that, I shouldn't have been as so blind to think that a trade of Marcel Darius could never happen. I mean, it's almost like I told myself the story before it happened. You said during the show, you have to under, trades like this don't happen because you need to understand the salary cap. And you're on your way to drinking a 12-pack, so you obviously <laughs> don't know the salary cap as well as Bean. No. And that's why he's the GM and I'm just some jerk behind a microphone. But here's what I've learned. And I, and I hate, okay, so let's all just say this. I hate Mike Rodak. I don't like his writing. I don't like his attitude. In fact, his I don't writing like, is You know good. what? I don't like his face. His, his writing is good, but he is a person, eh, he kind of sucks. I, here's what I will tell you. After you look at it, he wrote an article that really kind of encapsulated everything. And when it lined up with what I found when I dug into snap counts and everything else. I mean, this, first and foremost, the snap numbers for Marcel just aren't there, okay? The, the game against Tampa was the first time that he played more than 50% of the snaps in any game, and his production wasn't there. He wasn't making tackles. He wasn't getting sacks, and then when you look at the rest of the D tackles on the roster, they all play 40 to 50% of every game. That's, that's a coaching stamp. That's a coaching stance. That McDermott has taken with Leslie Frazier to say, look, we're going to rotate our D tackles. I want them fresh in the fourth quarter. They are all going to be rotational D men, no matter how talented they are, because I want them fresh when I need them. 
That being said, Darius wasn't producing when he got his shots. He simply wasn't. And he's making way too much money to do it. Wasn't he playing like 40% of our snaps? Yeah, just about 40 to 30. And then there's his personality. He's notorious for missing or being late to meetings. He's got a whole, just a whole, just an ass load of off-field concerns and distractions between racing some guy down Southwestern and crashing his car into out front of a Chinese restaurant to just, I don't know, the, the, the K2 arrest down in Alabama when he was smoking spice so because he thought he could circumvent the pot rules to what else? Uh, substance abuse suspensions. And then he got, he was literally sent home like a little kid from a preseason game. He didn't fit the culture McDermott was trying to build. He just didn't. And I'm sure that the only reason he's still here up to this trade deadline is because his McDermott knows that somewhere his talent outweighs the negatives that he brings to the table, his potential. But when Bean saw an outlet to let him go and get us out from under him, from under him, for what he perceived to be a win, he took it. And I balked at it. But Mike Rodak, to his credit, in his article, he really kind of reframed it and he put it through the lens of the Brock Osweiler trade from this preseason before the draft. In the offseason, the Texans realized that Brock Osweiler, who they had just signed to a four-year deal, wasn't a viable option to play quarterback for them. And they dumped his salary off on the Cleveland Browns. At the same time, they not only lost the player, but also had to give up a second-round pick in order to clear his $52 million in long-term salary. The Bills' move on Friday cleared a similar amount of salary, but didn't cost us anything other than the player, and we got a pick in return. I mean, through that lens, the trade just seems like a slam dunk. Right, Chris? Allegedly, I just worry about the... uh... Dead cap hit. Well, the dead cap hit, we're going to eat some of his salary next year. But then, after we pay the $14 million, we're still saving $3 million off of what we would have paid him. And then we're free and clear. Which means they probably have plans to continue building that D-tackle stable. But because they approach it as a team, if I guarantee you, if you asked him, if he, could, if he would rather have one $16 million D-tackle or five guys who are all talented enough who each made $4 million, he'd probably take the four guys because that's McDermott's approach. It's a team approach. I mean, not to look ahead, but to look ahead, Kyle Williams is old. We just traded Darius. Mm-hmm. We just unloaded one of our six picks in the top 100 to Carolina. I'd assume one of those five is in the draft this year is going to be for a defensive tackle. Probably. And drafting well is where this comes to. Now, last week, I was reading over articles before, well before the trade over at TheRinger.com and came across a fantastic article about parody. I'm going to put the link in, in the write-up for tonight's show, but once this trade happened, my mind kept going back to it when I think about this trade. In the article, they talk about how parody has been achieved through multiple avenues in the NFL, but how all of these teams seem pretty equal for the most part. But the most interesting stats throughout the article were about NFL spending habits. According to analysts from OverTheCap.com, no team in the salary cap era that has had more than 21.5% of its cap tied up between two players on the roster has ever won a Super Bowl. 
Now, they can postulate a lot of things from that. You know, they can sit there and they can think about, well, why is that? What drives that? Their thought process is that when you're paying two players a fifth of your team's money and those two players don't consistently give you Hall of Fame level production every single week, they hurt you because you don't have the money it takes to flesh out your roster with well-rounded players. And instead, you have to rely on rookies and undrafted free agents to round out your depth. That's what keeps you from being a real Super Bowl contender. They go on to use the Miami Dolphins as a perfect example of this. And since they're, a, I was really interested in this because they're a conference opponent, a conference and division opponent of ours. They have 22% of their cap tied up with Indomitian Sue and Ryan Tannehill, neither of whom have provided Pro Bowl play on a consistent basis for them. And you see what the results have been on the field. Since Sue was, since Sue was signed and since Tannehill signed his extension, they haven't been every week competitors. It's just, it's just not the way it works. I don't think anybody, any Dolphins fan can openly say they, they've liked what Sue has done since he's been there. No. In fact, earlier we got a friend from, uh, we got a text from friend of the show, Bob Kateris, just saying, fucking Dominican Sue. Don't know the context, don't know why, but he's a Dolphins fan, and I think it's hilarious he feels that way. Yeah, so fuck that guy. With the Darius trade, the Bills are no longer in that discussion. With their top two contracts only equating to 15% of their cap, it's going to give them a lot of flexibility moving forward into the future as McDermott and Bean try to build what they're hoping is going to be a championship roster. And for Darius, I love this guy. Okay, I loved him. I watched him play in college. I was a st- I was a grown man doing a, car- a full cartwheel in a bar the day we drafted him. You also much better than the cartwheel in the basement. Yeah, well, you also did cry on the show over him. I did. You're emotionally had, attached. to I him. was attached to this player, and so it's with a heavy heart. He's like a male Larissa. That I officially announced the retirement of my Darius jersey and say goodbye to one of my favorite players in recent history and probably one of my favorite Buffalo Bills ever. Chris, cheers. Cheers. What did I give you over there? We didn't even talk about this. I just I just brought it to you. You got to drink it. Chris hands me a beer, as we always do. We try to try to review something new. He brought me the 21st Amendment Brewery Fireside Chat Winter Spiced Ale. 7.9% alcohol, 45 IBUs. I don't know. It's got a picture of an old man on the can. We're going to see you. Uh, we're going to take this for a ride. Well, yeah, with my grandma passing and we had her service over the weekend, we had some get-togethers at my aunt's. So my brother and I had to go buy beer. And he saw that and picked that out. And I think he only had one. So... Oh, he, good. They brought, oh, good. So someone else well, bought something. I don't know how good it was. I didn't ask him, hey, do you have that fireside chat? Oh, boy. All right. A winter spiced ale. Yeah, winter's coming. It's like 38 here in Buffalo. Oh, my God. Okay, so anyone who listens to our show knows that I hated the Allagash White spiced ale. This is like that, except dirty. Dirty like you... <laughs> Like, Dirty. I can taste. Perfect word for it says, my ex-wife. It says fireside chat. I can taste ash in it. It's like, it's bitey. And it's stuck. The flavor of this beer is stuck to the roof of my mouth. Like something, oh, God. Hey, man, <laughs> hey man why, why, why sound like you got peanut butter stuck to the roof of your mouth? <laughs> no, that's just the flavor of this terrible beer. 
Chris, you've outdone yourself. All right, folks. So moving on. We're speaking of trades. More trade talk. Anquan Bolden wants to return to the NFL. Oh, shocker. So much for having a purpose that's bigger than football. You, oh, the things I could say about this guy. Last week in the run-up to our matchup with Oakland, a story broke that the agent for Bolden had reached out to the team and asked for the ability to seek a trade. Because it turns out Bolden does want to play football this season. Not he for us. He just doesn't want to play for the Bills. Whoa! Whoa! Shocker! Fuck that guy. <laughs> Sorry. You signed a contract, you came to practice, you talked the talk, and then you backpedaled the moment you thought things were going to go south. Like every fan did. He go had fuck this, that guy. He said he thought the same thing the fans thought. My we fa- were going to tank. My favorite part of all of this was that McDermott was asked about it during this week's uh, press conference before the Raiders game. And his response was McDermott-esque. Essentially just explaining that literally I think I could quote it. I've received the letter. I know about the letter. And, uh, That's I'm not, it. I'm not going to talk about that because I'm here to talk about the players who are here. I mean, literally, they, in this front office, and then today, when they asked him on uh, on the radio, they asked Brandon Bean, okay, so we didn't trade Anquan Bolton, and what does that mean for him? And Bean's, well, response, was, Bean's response was, well, I'm pretty sure that means he's gonna he's just going to stay retired. <laughs> Because neither one of these guys give a fuck about a about some player who took a cash grab and when it didn't go the way that he thought it would, decided to bail and then came crawling back asking to go be allowed to go play somewhere else. Absolutely not. Honor your word. If you can't honor your contract, and this isn't I know people are going to bark. Oh, well, the NFL doesn't honor its contracts with the players and they get fired all the time. The fact is you joined our team. You said you wanted to be here. You said all the right things. And then when we traded Sammy, you decided that you didn't. And then you, but, but the reason isn't because you didn't have the balls to come out and say, well, it's not, it's just because I don't want to play for this football team. I would have more respect for Anquan Bolden if he had said, I just don't want to play for the Buffalo Bills. Instead, he called it his, his calling to, uh, what do you call that? Uh, oh my God. It starts with a P, the word. He, the press? No, he wanted to be a, uh, he wanted to be a humanitarian, and he wanted to you focus want to be like on, Kaepernick. He wanted to focus on his work with people, and he thought he had a higher calling than football. And then he comes crawling back at the last moment to say, "Listen, I really do want to be a football player. I didn't mean any of that. I just yeah, we'll get bent. It just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Worse than this fireside chat, beer, whatever, whatever the fuck this is you just handed me. Well, is the second is the second sip any better? Oh. Please say no. <laughs> no. In fact, it's worse because it's warmer. <laughs> well, then you better jug that. But guys, this is why the trades are good for the NFL. We sat here last week saying there's never been a decent no. There's NFL never been trade a, deadline. a decent NFL trade deadline until this year. In the run up to the, this off season, and then the run up to the trade deadline. There was a lot of interesting moves made around the NFL. I mean, I mean, you've got Jay Ajay leaving the leaving the division and going to the Eagles for a fourth round draft pick. That's you've got Jimmy Garoppolo, who everyone assumed was even Patriots fans, like our friend Christian Simonelli, were all looking at him as he's the future, Tom's the past. There's got to be a succession plan in place. 
Bill Belichick in his press conference about the Jimmy Garoppolo trade flat out said, we, we exhausted every avenue we had to try to get him to sign a contract extension. The fact is the kid thinks he's a good enough quarterback to start this league, which considering you have a team that's starting someone named CJ Beathard, Iowa rookie out of Iowa. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what's going to happen right now with the Patriots. I'll tell you, this is a heavy quarterback class. Patriots have drafted a quarterback, have drafted more quarterbacks since Tom Brady was drafted than we have. They'll draft a quarterback this year, somewhere in the second, third, fourth round, just like they did Garoppolo. And Belichick is going to groom him. And then when Brady hangs it up, Belichick's going to hang it up and then leave a somewhat decent quarterback for uh, whoever the new coach would be. And how I'm going to be so mad, like if second, third round, they take like, Lamar Jackson, and he becomes something because yeah. I we both hate him. I but that's a story. That's a story for another day. All I, all I'm saying is, when you look at these trades, this is some of the most interesting times in football. This is the best trade deadline I've been alive for. And if you notice all the trades that happened today, they were all between the two conferences. Yep, AFC and NFC. Nothing in between. In Nothing between in between. Which is smart. Now, here's what I think. When I look at trades, this is why I think that this season, going all the way back to the preseason, when we traded Sammy Watkins, I think that that really got the ball rolling for the league because it proved that there is a market out there for trades. First and foremost, trades are wildly popular with fans. It drives attention. It creates content. There's discussion, debate. It's good for the sport to get a buzz going. Second, It helps top-tier teams solidify their rosters. It helps teams that are just on the cusp of contention who can, I mean, you look at what hockey is, the way hockey handles things. There's a trade deadline every year, and every year there's a frenetic run-up to it. And during that trade deadline, it's a fluid situation. Teams that were barely contenders can become contenders, can become playoff contenders, can become cup contenders, all during the trade deadline. What what you see teams both in hockey and in football this year, they're solidifying rosters. You know, you, you, you need depth at a certain position. Maybe you need a starter at a certain position, like the Buffalo Bills did, training for Kelvin Benjamin. You can address that and help to ensure that you're in the conversation when a, with a higher quality team, you know? Last year's wildcard games in the NFL were unwatchable blowouts. And I think that if, you know, perhaps if you look back at it, some of those teams could have made moves to make their rosters a little bit better. Maybe the product on the field might have improved. I mean, you look at this. The, the Texans beat the uh, Derek Carlos Raiders, 27-14. The Lions lost 6-26 to to the Seahawks. The Steelers stomped the Dolphins 30-12. to and the Giants got just pummeled by the Packers, 38-13. to You mean to tell me that if any of those wildcard teams that lost hadn't made a couple trades to tweak their roster and make it better, at least that game couldn't have been a little more competitive? Didn't t- you got, Somebody got knocked out of the Dolphins game. Well, it was the, 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 Quarter- the quarterback, Matt Moore, who was backing up Ryan Tannehill, who was out for injury. Yeah, he got steamrolled in that he game. He did. And so that's my point. And then the Raiders lost because they didn't have Derek Carr. Yep. That'll happen when you don't have an elite quarterback. 
And then the Giants just flat out suck, and they suck this year. No, I just, I just think that NFL trades rarely happen because it's so difficult to gauge what a player's value is. You know, give player for player trades and player for pick trades are so rare. You don't know how to gauge who's worth what. I mean, look at Kiko Alonso. Kiko Alonso got traded to the to the Philadelphia Eagles for Lashawn McCoy. LaShawn McCoy has been a dynamic running back in the engine of our offense. LaShawn McCoy, uh, Kiko Alonso, has since been traded from the Eagles to Miami, and he's a mediocre linebacker. What is the... Well, that, the only time you see trades in the NFL is at the draft. I know, but this is a step in the right direction for the league, okay? Years of increased activity like the one we just saw will do what hockey already has, and it will establish a value system. It'll set market value for certain positions, certain levels of production, and I think it makes future trades easier because you can look back and say, okay, Jay Ajay, he had a couple 200-yard games. He had uh, how much production over what and what a time span. Okay, he was worth a fourth-round pick. Okay, that tells me that as a GM, I can look at a similar running back I want to trade for, and I can use that as a comparable. And it will make the trade process easier. If there's more trades, you have a bigger history to follow, which then in turn makes future trades easier. Then, on the flip side, we also saw this from the Bills. It gives an avenue for teams that are saddled with unfavorable contracts. They can get rid of those. You know, they can kind of find a, a window to relieve themselves of these shitty contracts and at the same time bolster their future rosters. Or in the case of the uh, the Texans and the Browns, them getting rid of Brock Osweiler paved the way for Deshaun Watson to be their quarterback right now. And for Deshaun Kaiser. Oops. <clears throat> yeah, well, and Deshaun <laughs> Kaiser. But the fact is, is that, yes, they won. That's addition by subtraction. You cleared a roadblock to your rookie quarterback who is now one of the stars of the NFL. But that, that, that doesn't happen if you can't get rid of Osweiler. It's ultimately, it's, it's a good thing. Trades need to be embraced. I mean, going forward, even if some of the moves that happen today aren't ideal for any of our listeners' football teams, this type of trade activity is good for the NFL as a whole. And then you have to take into account the AFC as a whole. You know, the, you look at the trades the Bills just made, and you think about where does it put us on the, on the map here in the NFL. Well, with the Chiefs winning last night on Monday Night Football, they maintain their position near the top of the AFC. But behind the top tier of teams, things are pretty muddled. I, that's the only easy way to say it. As I stated earlier, go read that article about parody right now. Because what we're seeing, it's unfolding in front of us. With the Patriots on the bye this week, the Bills have a real opportunity here in front of us. Hey, right quick. Tell me if this doesn't sound legit. We play Thursday at the Jets, then host the Saints, and then back-to-back road games at L.A. Chargers, and then Kansas City before hosting the Patriots on uh, December 3rd. Would I be wrong to say, let's say we, we the only game we lose in that streak is the Chiefs? Couldn't I say that Patriots... Uh, that Patriot, that's a crapshoot. No, no, no I'm, that's what I'm getting at. That the Patriots game, we host, 
could be flexed to Sunday night? It could be, depending on where we are in the standings. Now, here's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the overall standings in the NFL, and right now you've got the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Kansas City Chiefs, and the New England Patriots with six wins. They are one, two, and three in the NFL. The Buffalo Bills are right behind them at five and two. And then you've got a whole mess of teams that are four and three and three and four. I mean, I think there's, what, eight teams that span that? The Jets are three and five and hopefully about to be three and six. And then from there, they just go on. I mean, there's, there's, everyone's so still bunched together here in the middle portion of the AFC. If you're smart, if you're a smart enough Bills fan and you know, as long as Brady's healthy, Patriots will win the division. If we're fighting for a wild card, you got to get the first one to get that matchup against the AFC South. You'd, you'd like that, right? But no, I would love that. Okay. Well, here's what I'm looking at. When I think about where we fit into the AFC's AFC picture, I mean, the AFC East, we're in second place with a chance to take first this week with a win. But in the grand scheme of the division, I mean, we're right, we're right near the top of it, which we haven't been to in a while with any kind of, I don't know, I shouldn't say without being there with some kind of a caveat. Like, well, you got there, but it's only because your offense is scoring 40 points, your defense is shit, and you've been lucky in five games. Even the national media is starting to buy in. I mean, here's Nate Burleson from Good Morning, uh, what is it, Good Morning Football? Over at NFL Bill's Network. Mafia, I apologize. I picked against you, and I, I've been—I've been doubting. I've been doubting this team, and I haven't been sold on the gameplay. But what you guys are doing defensively, what you guys are doing on the offense side of the ball, Tyrod Taylor is doing everything you ask him to do. He's not turning over the ball. He's making great decisions with the rock in his hand, and he can get outside the pocket with his feet. But he doesn't even do that. He sits back. Even when the pocket collapses, he'll do a pirouette, sit back, relax, keep his helmet upfield, and then throw the ball to his wide receivers and running backs. And then Shady McCoy, just like Deion said, he called a shot, said, I'm going to ball, so I need to get the call. And at his age, being a running back, he is one of the best in the game. So, for all the Bills fans out there, you don't need to tweet me anymore. I will stop doubting you, and I will stop picking against you. The Buffalo Bills are for real. Not in my book. Now, here's the thing. Define for real. We're a team that's winning based off the strength of our defense, our turnover ratio. We're not winning off the arm of our quarterback. No. We're winning off the fact that our quarterback doesn't turn it over. Our running back is a just train wreck for another team waiting to happen. I mean, they're, the, the Oakland Oakland Raiders walked straight into the buzzsaw of LaShawn McCoy this week. Yeah, our and running game is, is on the up and up. It's on the up and up, but here's the thing. What we are is we're a team that's going to play conservative football. So you're never going to get the home run play against us. And you're never going to get the – you're not going to break the game open, quote-unquote, against the Buffalo Bills. You're going to have to grind games out, and that's where we live. We live with a short yardage throwing quarterback, a conservative quarterback, a conservative offense, and just a stingy defense. Now, this is how I think we stack up going forward. We're currently second scoring defense in the NFL. The Bills are currently the only team in the AFC without a home loss. We are the only team that is perfect at home. That means something. I'm surprised you didn't take all the credit there. That sounds like you. Like, we're a Bills are undefeated home because of me, Drew Gear, section 200, row 7. You're welcome. <laughs> Chris, you've sat through enough games with me. I bring the thunder. I absolutely do. Yeah, if you stay for the whole fucking game. Hey, I leave, we win football games. 
I left because I didn't want to punch out a kid and uh, punch out two kids in front of a 10 year old. And then stack, and lastly, I guess we have home games coming up against Indy. The Chargers. Chargers is on the road. Chargers is on the road. With the Indy game, the uh, Miami game, and then even the Patriots. Okay. Which I just said, I think that'll get flexed if, yep. we, if we can keep winning, which that, I don't want to, but well, well, here's, keep winning. Here's what I think when I look at those games. I say, you've got the Patriots, okay? The Patriots, by the time we play them, I'm sure they'll be a well-oiled machine. But this defense has handled well-oiled offensive machines. I mean, we played we played a team last week, just this past week that put up 400-and-something yards of passing offense. In the previous game. Against Kansas City, which is a pretty good defense. Which is a and, pretty good defense. And and we held them down and we pissed in their hair. <laughs> yeah. You've got Indianapolis, who is the worst, one of the worst scoring offenses and one of the worst scoring defenses in the NFL. They're terrible on both sides of the ball. Not, not just both sides, all three phases. And now you're bringing in Miami, who is again one of the worst. They are the worst scoring offense in football. And they just lost Jay Ajayi. And Cutler, he's got the rib. Oh, Cutler will be back by the time. Well, he's got the rib. You don't know how that can linger. What I do know is this. There are wins here at home to be had. And by winning this week and going to 6-2, and two, you might only have to steal a win on the road here and there to end up with 10 wins at the end of the season. I think it's a good time to be the Buffalo Bills, and that's why I think they made that trade for Kelvin Benjamin, because they see that too. They see, look, we're close. We're close to accomplishing something fantastic. For anyone out there who has Twitter, go to Travis Yost's, at Travis Yost, T-R-A-V-I-S-Y-O-S-T, and take a look at a chart that he put up today about the Buffalo Bills. He basically charted our, our playoff percentage game by game, year over year, throughout the entire drought. And what you'll see is that up to this point, there hasn't been a season where we've been over 60%. By this point in the season, we're usually at about 30 to 40%. Right now, with a win on Thursday, our percentage chance of making the playoffs increases to 83%. That's something. I'm with the uh, 17. <laughs> well, it all st- we're, the only reason we're here having this conversation is because we whooped up on the Oakland Raiders this week. And that brings us to our Week 8 recap. Buffalo Bills 34, Raiders 14. Let me give you my stats of the game. First and foremost, turnovers. Raiders zero, Bills four. Two interceptions, two fumbles. But Bills points over turnovers. Only 13 points. LaShawn McCoy, 27 carries, 151 yards, one rushing touchdown. Six to seven on the receptions with 22 extra yards tacked on. The Raiders, three of 10 on third down. Good for 30%. Khalil Mack. Zero sacks, two tackles. Penalties. Buffalo 11 for 95 and Oakland 6 for 50. And the quarterback comparison. Tyrod Taylor. 20 to 27 for 74% completion percentage. 165 yards. Oh, if I have to drink after even just saying that. Yeah, and he had a drink at Fireside. Oh, and a touchdown. Derek Carr. 31-49 for 63%. 313 yards, one touchdown, two picks, and a 49.9 pro football focus grade. 
First and foremost, one of my biggest takeaways from this game is that our nickel package is ridiculous. Okay, The Bills came into the game shorthanded in the secondary. They had some injuries. You know, EJ Gaines is out. Um, let's see, Jordan Poyer's out. They brought in a kid off the street, and then the week before that, they, shined, they signed Shamarco Thomas, former safety of the uh, uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. So I understand it, it was a huge reason for concern amongst the fan base heading into kickoff. Everyone watched what the Raiders' offense did to the Chiefs. They, they got shredded on defense by this, by this explosive downfield throwing offense that the Oakland Raiders have. And I'm still amazed by what they were able to pull off. Micah Hyde, Sharice Wright, Tredavious White, Trey Elston, and Elston Johnson each played over 90% of the team's defensive snaps, which you'd expect coming against coming against a team that has the downfield throwing talent that the Raiders have. But what shocked me is that the other two DBs on the roster combined for just 1% of all snaps. What that means is that it didn't matter. There's only five of them. It didn't matter whether the other team went four wide, five wide, whether they were in, you know, sometimes base package. We played a ton of nickel defense. And we left those three defenders on the field, those three D-backs at cornerback out there for most of the game. I mean, 90% of all defensive snaps. We played almost the whole game in a nickel package. And it worked. It paid off. Because it left us linebackers in the middle of the field that were tough to pass against, but were also strong against the run. We held the Raiders to 54 rushing yards. If we had tried throwing in an extra DB like Shamarco Thomas, or some this Pitts kid that we signed off the street, it could have not only exposed one of them as a liability in pass defense, but also made us weak against the run. I love the fact that Leslie Frazier and Sean McDermott had the balls to stick to their guns and say, listen, these are our most talented players. We are going to throw them out there for the majority of the game as a group. And hopefully they're the reason we win this game. Even after the first drive where the Raiders just, I, I, they dissected our defense. And we played a, a lot of nickel during that stretch. Instead of making in-game adjustments, the coaching staff went to the players and just said, look, you just got to execute. We're not changing anything. There is no magic plan. There's no tweaks to be made. We came up with a game plan. You guys go out there and execute it better. And the players responded in a huge way. The Raiders scored on their opening drive and then didn't score again until the start of the fourth quarter. What'd you say after that first drive? Oh, I said this is it. I thought that this was I thought we were going to be a sieve because of how they just executed. They picked on Matt Milano. They picked on Shamarco Thomas the one time he was on the field. They picked on a lot of different players and they marched their way down the field. They got helped out by a penalty. They found their way to the end zone. And in my head I said, okay, this nickel defense of ours can't hold up. Well, your whole issue the first drive was that we were missing Darius. That's what you were complaining about. Well, I did complain stands. about that because there was a couple times where, where you saw Derek Carr step up into a clean pocket and deliver the ball downfield. No one was in his way. The A-gap was completely devoid of any defenders, which Darius is just too big and powerful to move. 
even if he's not getting a push in the A gap, he's still there. It just it, it blew my mind. And yet our defense responded, and that's coaching. Okay, that's coaching. You can't take that away from McDermott or Frazier. In fact, I give them a round of applause for sticking to their guns and doing fulfilling their game plan. They came up with a game plan against this offense that they think could work, and they executed it. Now, on the flip side of the ball, the one thing that worked consistently all day, LaShawn McCoy. He's been talking for a few weeks now about how he feels like he's getting closer and closer to having one of those games. You know, the, the old 2015, 2016 McCoy games. Well, he showed us it. He was elusive. He was decisive. He came up huge for us in a game where he produced almost as many offensive yards as our quarterback. In fact, if you factor in his receiving yards plus his rushing yards, he surpassed Tyrod when it came to producing yardage on the field, which is just, it's almost disgusting to talk about. But his rushing ability kept their linebackers and nickel DBs with their eyes focused on the line of scrimmage, which allowed us to get behind them for some of the most dynamic plays of the afternoon. I mean, that Brandon Tate play doesn't happen without having LaShawn McCoy on the field. Don't, the one thing I took away from that tape play is you're talking about the third third down conversion, right? The second down. Second and 20. Okay. Well, either way, so you got a first down. It went out of bounds on the Bills sideline. Yep. The only thing I remember from that play is that I think it was everybody except Reed and Colton because they were doing stuff off way on the sideline. Everybody just seemed to, like, gravitate to Tate on the sideline and congratulate him, like, all 53 guys. It was weird. It wasn't that doesn't weird. happen. That's a team. That's a team, and that's the culture that McDermott has been building here. I don't get it, and I don't believe in it. You know what I don't believe in is this fireside chat beer. Guys, I'm going to finish this thing right now, but I'll tell you, if you ever see this, if anyone ever offers this to you, they should be handing you money while they do so. If you were to drink this, if, drink this for free like I am, or God help you if you pay for this thing, then you have been cheated, sir. 21st Amendment, Fireside Chat, gets a solid, it gets the fat guy's seal of disapproval. I haven't had one yet, so I can't Ugh. wait to, I can't wait to have one. Don't. Bury it in the backyard where it belongs. <laughs> There's four left. But McCoy didn't do it on his own. Okay, he didn't just have one of these wild games where he produced by himself. Rick Dennison, I've been badgering him all season as a shitty, def- uh, shitty offensive coordinator. You wanted him fired after week two. He called one hell of a game. Other people out there will look at their phone, their computer, they'll go and they'll read the stats, and they'll 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 think I'm high. Oh, our quarterback only threw 165 yards. What do you mean he called a good game? He did a few things that are the mark of what a solid coach is. First and foremost, he came up with a winning game plan. Tyrod only throws the ball deep off play-action passes and rollouts. With Khalil Mack on the field, both of those ideas are non-starters. You cannot roll the ball to Mack's side. You can't. You're asking for him to get off his block, drag down your quarterback for what could be a 5-10 to yard loss every time. Knowing this, defensive coordinators can roll their coverage to the opposite side of the field from Mack Because they know that as an offensive coordinator, you're not going to roll the dice and try to get past him. So that deep passing element disappeared from our game this Sunday. It really did. It it was on Tyrod Taylor to make. I mean, he had a 73% completion percentage. 
when they did call for a throw, he threw the ball away when he had to. But if not, he checked it down and just let somebody make try to make a play. Get some yards after the catch. Let's live to fight another day. The Raiders kept Tyrod. They came into this game and did what a lot of teams do. They kept Tyrod from running around outside the pocket. I mean, if you look at his total rushing yards, he had next to nothing, which is where we all know Tyrod is most dangerous when he gets to use his legs. Having to stay and throw from the pocket, I mean, when you think about it, Chris, last year's Ravens game. Think about the Chiefs game. Anytime when a defense has been able to sit Tyrod Taylor in the pocket and keep him from using his legs to run for extra yardage, he struggles to orchestrate our offense. And generally, we've lost a lot of those football games. There were three passes from Sunday that stick out my brain. Now, I don't know if you're still on on my train of I don't like Tyrod. Well, no, you're not, I don't either. Okay, you're not going to get me to change my opinion. No, I'm, I'm, we're, we're, that, we're, I'm talking about the offensive okay. coordinator right now. All right, well, I'm, I'm he saying, called up a play that got Nick O'Leary wide open in the end zone. Tyrod Taylor missed him, missed him probably about five feet over his head. Yeah, and a there good th- quarterback throws that touchdown. Yeah, pass. and there were three other plays that I can distinctively remember that Tyrod missed on. One was a completion. Two, he just he just hit the receiver on the wrong side. Whether there was one where I think he needed to throw him outside, and he threw him inside, and it could have easily been a pick, and vice versa. <laughs> needed to throw inside and threw outside, and then there was that Andre Holmes pass on the sideline had him wide open. He leads him. That's a touchdown, but because he was inaccurate, Holmes had to make some tiptoe catch to keep his feet in bounds. I just, I'm not saying Tyrod Taylor is a great quarterback or that he's the quarterback of our future, but what I do is I, I give credit to Rick Dennison for scheming up the plan around Tyrod's deficiencies to say, look, we know that we can't do this. We know they can't do that. They're taking away everything that he wants to do with his legs. So let's come up with an attack that makes sense. And speaking of making sense, I mean, essentially what he did was he schemed up a bunch of short routes to try to generate yards after the catch and made sure that Tyrod wasn't a sitting duck in the pocket. And on the flip side of that, he went back to 2016. The reason we're able to win on a day when our quarterback can only throw for 165 yards is that Dennison finally decided to stop Rex Ryaning our offense and went back to the pin and pull rushing game when he thought he needed it. I didn't even know that happened. Yeah, I know you didn't because you don't know X's and O's. Everyone loved that big touchdown run from LaShawn McCoy, the 45-yarder. And everyone says, oh, where's that been all season? Well, I'll tell you where it's been. Because we haven't been running the offense that this team needs to, given the talent of its offensive linemen, to run those types of plays. The zone running game, is it, it's a good idea. We don't have the personnel to run it. And I think Dennison has finally learned that. So instead... On that long touchdown run by Shady, they pulled Vlad Dukas from right guard, and he came across the back of the formation, comes in and just hammers a seal block to create a running lane for LaShawn McCoy, and it's a home run because there's no safety back. That's the type of thing that we did all year to defenses. We did it to the Jaguars. We did it to countless other teams. It's It's encouraging to me to see Rick Dennison going back to the well of what was successful. Instead of 
continuing to try to say, okay, well, I'm this type of coach, and this is the scheme I like, and I'm going to force it on you guys. I Honestly, I don't know. I just think that with Rick Dennison and with Leslie Frazier and with McDermott, the three of them together are really putting us in a position to win most football games. And then I'm going to end this all with the penalties and what I like to call the Ed Hockley effect. Anyone who follows our podcast knows how much I hate that dirtbag. He leads a crew of officials where it I don't know. They over-officiate when they don't need to, and they under-officiate where they should. And the sad thing is it affected both teams. It, It hurt both sides of the ball. There were some egregious examples that showed that his crew might be one of the worst in football. I mean, Chris, how... Chris, can you tell me that just being in the stands, not even seeing it on TV, that some of the calls were horseshit? Yeah, but I had more fun watching you react to the calls. Because <laughs> I wanted to, so much more entertaining. Because at that point, I probably would have just set. I would have just set things on fire. Like at that point, I was so angry that I probably, I, if if the benches were flippable, I would have flipped them. I mean, it was in, it was incredible. Between picking up a flag for holding after someone saw something worth throwing a flag for holding, Kyle Williams has famously ripped that. Is something he's never seen an official do. And then you look at the egregious offensive pass interference call where the defender clearly slipped and fell, but they were ready to throw a flag the moment something cross happened. And then the biggest, the biggest play of the day. <laughs> I mean, his crew threw over 15 flags, but I think that the biggest play of the day, which was pointed out to me by my boss, was the clusterfuck that happened on the punt that the Raiders fumbled. Recovered by Reed Ferguson. The returner's foot was on the line before he fumbled, which means that technically the Raiders should have maintained possession of the ball. After quote-unquote reviewing the play, the referees awarded possession to the Buffalo Bills. Jack Del Rio was livid on the sideline and walked well off the sideline and got himself ready to throw the challenge flag while the Bills were trying to center the ball and get their next playoff. The back judge, in the middle of the play, leaves his position. There's no timeout called. The game is still going on. Leaves his position in the secondary to come talk to the coach, who is now on the field. Jack Del Rio is on the field, well off the sideline, okay, to start to explain why he couldn't challenge the play and why he shouldn't be on the field. But there was a live fucking play going on. The game is still happening. And so what does Hockley do? He blows the play dead before the Bills get to snap the ball. The whole process was a disaster and ultimately should have resulted in either a 15-yard penalty on Del Rio for coming onto the field and holding up the game, or a play where the Bills got to run it with no back judge. But Hockley saved one of his underlings' asses, proving that they don't even know how to do their jobs properly. That crew, to me, regardless of how anyone else in the NFL regards them, should be thrown out of a plane over the Grand Canyon with no parachute. And that brings us to this week's Hero and Zero of the Game. 
And I got to give my hero of the week to running back LaShawn McCoy. <laughs> I'm the greatest man in the world. Woo! You ran for more yards than our quarterback can throw. <laughs> you're, you're a stud. You paced our offense for the day. God bless you. Hopefully you come in just hungry for another game like that against another shitty run defense in the New York Jets. And on the zero side of the ball, I'm giving it to Ed Oculey. You folks fell on your face. You get an F minus in my book. You and Hockley are like a reverse King Midas in which everything that you touch turns to shit. I'd like to bite your ear like Mike Tyson. That's all I have to say. I I have nothing left to say about this thing. And as we always do, we're going to walk right into this week's AFC East Roundup. And we're going to start off by talking about the Miami Dolphins. They lost to the Ravens. Ravens 40. Dolphins zero. (laughs) Wow. I mean, I hate those turds. And clearly I was rooting against them because everybody in our division should be. But I don't know that anyone outside of the Patriots and people who think that pineapple is an acceptable pizza topping deserve to be embarrassed like that. Or Almond Joy is a fucking candy. Almond Joy is a respectable candy. You shut your mouth. I will come across the Almond Joy is shit. Almonds are shit. You are shit. The moment these microphones go off, you're a dead man. (laughs) Bills have to be familiar with the fact that uh, the Miami Dolphins, we're not fans. Okay? And this sentiment that when your quarterback is struggling, the backup quarterback is the most popular guy in town. I mean, we heard it early this season. Calls for Nathan Peterman, who's never played a game. People calling for Peterman to start. Well, apparently the volume has been up in Miami. People were calling for more to start over Jay Cutler for weeks. Well, guess what? Hopefully all of that nonsense has been laid to rest. Matt Moore, he's a tenured backup in the NFL. Okay, He's, he's talented enough to stick around. He is not up to producing NFL caliber results from under center when teams have a little bit of time to prep for him. He threw two pick sixes completely folded in the face of Baltimore's consistent pass rush. And the line of scrimmage belonged to Baltimore all night. Jay Ajayi only managed 23 yards rushing, but his first rushing attempt was for 21 yards. Chris, he averaged... That's the kind of thing that gets you traded. He averaged three inches per carry for the rest of the game. That's fucking pathetic. What we learned about the Dolphins on Thursday night is that if you can contain the rushing attack, their offense falls apart. It loses all balance, and they come off the rails. Now, I've got to believe that teams will key on this as their season continues, especially now that J.H.I. is gone. And even with Cutler under center, I I just don't buy this team. We got two matchups in December. Can't wait. Can't wait. This week, we get to watch them bumble their way through another primetime football game against the Oakland Raiders. Hopefully, this week's game for them is just as ugly as the last one was. Then, the New England Patriots took on the Los Angeles Chargers at home. Patriots 20, Chargers 13. What do you think about that, Chris? The Chargers lost to the Patriots by just... You had to bonehead play by Travis Benjamin. You lost by a touchdown in a game where you had a punt returner who literally ran into the end zone and then got tackled on a punt Idiot. for a touchdown. Idiot. You gave you gave your opponent the margin of the margin of victory. 
Otherwise, they played each other even. I mean, fuck those guys. Fuck the Patriots for getting lucky enough that some some someone was dumb enough to do that. Well, the only downside, at least for me, was Chris Hogan. Ah, uh, Chris Hogan went down with a shoulder injury during the game. But even without him, the Patriots offense seems to be turning into the offense that the Belichick envisioned this offseason when he brought in Gillisley and Rex Burkhead as free agents. You know, when I saw the fact they signed both of those running backs, in my head, I'm like, oh, well, they have to be cutting someone. Oh, no. They run a four-running back stable, and they use them all liberally in the passing game, the rushing game. This is the offense that Bill Belichick envisioned for his team this year. They can run the ball. They can catch. I I mean, the running backs gained 62% of the team's total yardage. 414 yards in total offense, and the four running backs combined for 62% of that. Yeah, who who are you throwing to outside of Gronk now that Hogan's injured? No, but that's it. They don't need them. The team that Bilicek saw them being was the team that would scare people with their wide receivers, and he would eat you alive with his running backs. Well, now that he's lost a bunch of wide receivers, he's proving that he can still have a team that eats you alive with his running backs. It's It's... Terrifying. They can get out in space and catch the ball. Each of them are capable of running from under center. It's, I, I mean, they're, they are the, the Hydra. They're just a multi-headed monster that I don't know how you slay it. I don't know how you beat them. I mean, the story of the game for me is that the injuries are continuing to mount for the Patriots. Chris Hogan, Marcus Cannon, and Malcolm Brown have now joined Stephon Gilmore and Eric Rowe as questionable with ankle and shoulder injuries. And some of them are going to miss some time, leaving them further thinned out than they already were. Now, we're going to have to keep an eye because they're on a bye this week. They're going to come out. we got to keep an eye on those injury reports to get a better idea of what they're going to be able to field in Week 10 against the Broncos. The Broncos look weak. I mean, that Monday Night Football game, they turned the ball over five times. That's, that's, (laughs) Chris, that's pathetic. That's why they suck. I don't know. I just think it's it's worth noting that the Patriots are trending in the opposite direction of the Bills in the sense that we're getting healthier and we're looking to the return of some of our key players. And the Patriots seem to be losing more and more of their key players by the week. And then you've got the New York Jets. They lost to the Falcons 25 to 20. Just taking a look over what I mean. They avoided going winless in the AFC East on Sunday, the Falcons did, when they beat the Jets in the Meadowlands. And the Jets are now firmly in the basement of the division. Josh McCown continues to be the guy that everyone thought he would be. He's a veteran option that he can make some decent throws for about 15 yards. (laughs) I mean, he completed 78% of his passes in this game and threw two touchdowns. But he still does a lot of things that quality starters at the NFL level just don't do. He tries to extend plays. All the things that I scream about Tyrod Taylor about, Chris. He scrambles around trying to extend plays and doesn't know when to throw it away and takes a lot of sacks. He took one in particular on Sunday. Turned into a... Essentially, it was third third and long. He takes a giant sack. Marches him back seven yards. So that 41-yard field goal attempt turns into a 48-yard field goal attempt. And of course their kicker missed it because he's not, he's not house money. 
They don't have Reed Ferguson snapping the football. <laughs> so that's not a way to win. Okay. And the offense struggled to come up with a response when they did lose the lead. They couldn't march down the field and score when they needed to. The team has no choice but to rely on McCown because their rushing attack has fallen apart. They only managed 43 total yards rushing over four different running backs. Meanwhile, the Falcons finally, in a game against an AFC East team, made enough plays when it mattered scoring more than 17 points for the first time all season against an AFC East defense. The Jets blew a lead and lost the game for the third straight week, and I got to imagine that there's fingers to be pointed everywhere, and there's plenty of reason for it. And here to help us discuss him, we have an exciting new guest coming straight to you from Jet Nation. Joe Blewett. What are you doing in here, cutie? The Hoboken heartthrob. Watching football. Who do you want to win? The goddamn Jets. There is no Jet Nation. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Joe Blewett in house with us tonight. How you doing, Joe? Doing good, guys. How are you doing, Drew and Chris? Not too We're bad. Doing not good. too bad. Now, folks, those of you who don't know Joe Blewett, Joe is the host of the Jet Nation Radio. We're going to get into it here, folks. So first and foremost, the information for the game. Time, 8.30 p.m. It's going to be televised on, I I think you can get it on, what is it, Amazon something. You can also get it on the NFL Network. I think they stopped the broadcast TV simulcast on Channel 4. Is that correct? Got to be a CBS game. Yeah. That's how prepared we are. We don't even know the details. The location is some swamp with pipes in New Jersey. Like, that's what I no, think it, of. When, it, I, when I think of New Jersey, Joe, it's nothing personal. But when I think of, like, New Jersey, I've driven through it to go to the Skate and Surf Festival once. And it just didn't look. And I'm, I know every place has their areas that are like that. But to me, all I saw was highways and factories. Oh, yeah. No, what I'm literally telling you, like, and I've been to a couple other stadiums. Me and my buddy actually try to go to a different stadium every year. Mm-hmm. That life is is probably the, in terms of the surrounding area, is probably the worst stadium you'll ever go to. Um, so plan a you know, something to do around that day, then go to the game. Unless you're just going to go tailgate and, you know, get hammered. But um, if you're going around that area and looking for things to do, it's not really the best area. But if you guys ever come out to a game, I'll take you out to some spots, and then you'll um, have a better picture of, of New Jersey. Better appreciation not, of New Jersey? We might have to take you up on that. Yeah, I want to know. I want to go to Hoboken. Hoboken. Hoboken's best Italian restaurant. <laughs> My favorite thing is the phrase, go back to Hoboken. That always was a thing for me, but according to guys I talked to from Jersey, Hoboken's actually pretty nice now. Oh, yeah, Hoboken, Hoboken's really nice. It's not, it's not my type of style because it's a really, really busy type of place. I mm-hmm. like to go to more low-key places by me. Mm-hmm. I don't have to take an hour train to get to. Um, but, yeah, we can, you know, because Chris always makes fun of Hoboken. We can go to Hoboken and we'll see if he can, if he can keep up. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think he can. The weather for Thursday night is going to be beautiful. It's going to be 20% chance of uh, precipitation, 71 degrees, partially sunny. It should be good that night. Our official is going to be this guy named John Perry, who I don't have anything against yet. So we've got that going for us. And the spread is the Bills. is a three-and-a-half-point favorite with an under-over of 43 points. Chris, agree or disagree? I, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty comfortable we're going to take this game. And I would, I would say the, take the over. I agree. So we don't have a Seagram's bet yet, but yes. we will get it. We will figure out a Seagram's bet. The injury bet. report, the Buffalo Bills, pretty short. 
Free safety Jordan Poyer, knee, questionable. EJ Gaines at cornerback, hamstring, questionable. Tight end Charles Clay, knee, doubtful. Linebacker Ramon Humber with his thumb, he's questionable. Both Poyer, Gaines, and well, Poyer and Humber specifically have stated that they think that they can play. I don't think they'll let Humber see the field, but the fact that Poyer wants to and that Gaines is even somehow making a comeback, we seem pretty healthy, all things considered, halfway through a season. Usually for the Bills by this point, it's like the game Oregon Trail, and half of our team has already died of dysentery. Now on the flip side of that, you've got the Jets. Offensive lineman Brandon Shell has a neck injury, and he's doubtful. Cornerback Morris Claiborne, foot injury, questionable. Now, he's had a long track record of foot and ankle and different injuries that have held him back, So hopefully, but he's been healthy for the Jets so far this year. Cornerback Buster Screen, concussion, questionable. Damn it. Matt Forte, knee, questionable. And the biggest, I think, is Muhammad Wilkerson. Shoulder and foot injuries, he is also listed as questionable. Now, Joe, my first question to you. When you look at all of these injuries... Which one of them stands out to you as probably the most important to your team's success? Well, it really depends on, well, you know, people would really look at Wilkerson and a lot of other fans from opposite teams think that he is you know, this great player and he's doing so much with the Jets and, you know, NFL's top 100 players and all this stuff. And, you know, don't get me wrong, the last two games, he's actually looked like the pre-contract Mo Wilkerson, you know, 2015, 14, 13 Wilkerson. Um, but the, you know, six games prior to that, you know, I do the film reviews every week on my Twitter and there was 15 to 20 plays. So maybe, maybe that's a little bit traumatic. Maybe 10 to 15 plays every single game where he was just completely, you know, loafing it. Um, so if, if it's the Wilkerson who showed up the last two weeks, it's probably him. Uh, Brandon Shell has been okay at the right tackle position at best. Uh, I would probably say even a little bit less than okay, but you really look at his replacement and Brent Quale or Ajalana. They're both pretty damn bad at this point. So those are probably the two who worry me the most. Screen might be a, um addition by subtraction type of thing because Screen is probably one of the worst corners in the entire NFL. I'll have a few flash plays here and there, and I'll get all those fans who will, you know, hit me up and, oh, well, look at this play. Look how good he played. You know, look, look at this pass deflection. Look how well he played this route. And don't listen, if you're in the NFL, no matter what player you are, you're going to make a, a good player too. Um, <laughs> I believe you guys, I believe you guys just had Vlad or Vlad Dukas on your team. I don't know if he still is on your team. Yep. Um, Unfortunately. But, no, but I'll tell you, he put on a show <laughs> on Sunday. Exactly. And so you'll see, and I, I, listen, I'm not, you know, I'm not studying the Buffalo Bills film, mm-hmm. but every single player in the NFL, you know, the worst guy to the best guy, they're going to have a, a game or two stretch where they look pretty good or a couple of good plays on a drive. Um, but it's really about consistency. So screen will show you a couple of flash plays. Oh, you know, really nice pass deflection, really sat on top of the route, squatted it really well. And then there's other plays where he just looks like absolute garbage. Well, we so, talked about, we talked uh, about it before and the Dolphins pretty much made him their whipping boy in that game. I mean, I think, oh, yeah, yeah. I think it was pro football Look focus that. had him credited for allowing seven receptions, three touchdowns and committing two penalties. Yeah, it was, I believe, yeah, it was seven receptions, like 124 yards, three penalties. <laughs> and one of the penalties, they're, they're, you know, one of the, uh, I forget what Dolphins player was running up the seam and screen has both Jamal Adams and Marcus May in support right by him. They're literally right by him. They both tip the ball actually. Instead of Buster screen having the awareness to say, okay, well, I have two safeties around me. They can play, they can make a play on the ball. What does Buster screen do? Like the jackass he is, he jumps. Max, I think it was Kenny Stills right in the face mask, 
um, pass interference. So oh. he is just a really, really bad player at, at this point. So he might be addition by subtraction. Some of the other guys on the injury report, uh, Morris Claiborne, I, I believe, is going to play. Uh, we talked about Mo Wilkerson. I'm not sure if, if he will play uh, because he's been the last couple of weeks not really practicing and then he'll play in the game. But on a short week, I'm not sure if he will be able to go. Um, but, you know, I guess in a long way to answer the question, I'd say Wilkerson and Brandon Shell. I'm not really too worried about Claiborne not playing. Well, I was going to say Brandon Shell. From everything I was reading, Brandon Shell was giving you guys a lot of good snaps. I mean, I, he, was, he went whole games without allowing a quarterback pressure. I mean, he was doing pretty well for you guys at the beginning of the season. So hopefully that, that hopefully that injury, whenever you see a guy with a neck injury and he's doubtful, that's never good. Like, that's long-term bad, which you don't want to see. You know, even though I hate your team, I don't want to see it. <clears throat> so, no, no, exactly. So what we like to do is we like to take this and we break it up into two halves. We preview, you know, we talk a little bit about the offense and then we change gears and talk about the defense. So in starting with the offense... First and foremost, you guys, and maybe it's something with Brandon Shell being out of the lineup. I don't know if it's injuries. You guys have had some real issues rushing the football, and your play calling has been kind of unbalanced. Like, it's tur- you guys have turned into a pass-first offense. And I don't really know how that happened, because under Rex Ryan, you guys were built to be the ground-and-pound play defense team. Well, this season, you guys have really struggled to run the ball in some of these games. What do you think it is that's driving that? Uh, and, and you just you just gave the exact reason. The reason that the Jets aren't running the ball is because is because they're struggling to do so, and they have a terrible yards per carry average. Um, and it's not even just Shell. And listen, Shell, like I said, you know Jets fans are a little bit higher on him because any fan of any team is going to look at a player on their team and you know mm-hmm. have the fan glasses on and say, okay, well they're better than they really are. Mm-hmm. Shell has been you know I would say below average, but it's still um, you know encouraging because he is a fifth round pick of last year. Um, so he's a, he's a positive on the offensive line, but everybody else, Wesley Johnson has to be a bottom three center in the league. James Carpenter, the last, his first years with the Jets, he was a really good, um, left guard in this league. I would say top five, top 10 this year. I would say he's been, you know, right in the middle of the pack to below middle of the pack. The guy is getting to the second level on some combo blocks and he came and hold the block on linebackers. And it's not like the linebackers are, you know, using their athleticism to get around him. He, he's locking them up, hitting them in the chest, and they're still getting around him. Wow. So he's having a bad season. Um, Brian Winters isn't having a good season. He's getting thrown back five yards on a bull rush right into McCown's pocket. Um, and, you know, Beecham's never been a run blocker. No. Um, but you, you watch you watch some of these, and I, I know I just talked about, you know, Brian Winters on, in, mm-hmm. in the pass blocking game, but going back into the run blocking game, they're not opening any holes. These running backs have literally nowhere to run. Uh, a lot of fans get on Matt Forte, and you know, listen, he he is definitely older. He's losing a step, but you watch it, and and this is what guys who watch film, you know, um, like I do, like you do, Drew. I'm not sure how big of a film guy Chris is over there. Oh no, Chris, um, Chris barely understands hey, but, X's and O's, but every now and again, he's surprised. Hey, I will tell you, three years ago, I had a guy I work with. I was telling him, I go, the only reason Darren McFadden's getting anywhere on the Cowboys is because of the holes his offensive line is opening. And then he go, and the guy says to me, "Yeah, that no, that doesn't mean anything." <laughs> what? <laughs> no, but so that's my yeah. point. Like the, to the average fan, there are a lot of people who don't understand you. Like you, like you touched on, there will be times when members of a fan base will point at a player and say, "Oh, that running back sucks. That running back is doing terrible." I think that, mm-hmm. it, but you and I know from watching in a film that if you could don't give these guys a lane, they're not going anywhere. That's just how the run. That's how running in football works. So you could put 
yourself or me probably behind the Cowboys offensive line, and I bet you we could gain five yards to ten yards somewhere. On a Sunday, you and I yeah. could have at least a couple carries for five to ten yards behind that offensive line because they, they open holes. Your line, it doesn't sound yeah. like they're getting it done. I just I hate that they're blaming Matt Forte because, and I'll tell you, I think Matt Forte at this point in his career, I, I mean, has has he just peaked? Has he plateaued? I mean, I feel like oh, he's on oh, the. That, no, that's that's unquestionable. He should he should really not even be getting you know getting snaps over Powell and McGuire. It's not the fact that I want to see him play, but it's like I said, the fans' easy way out. Oh well, you know, let me Google the the yards per carry. Oh, you got three yards per carry. He sucks. But then when you really turn on the film. Listen, when when guys aren't creating push on a combo block, that is that is beyond bad. You have 600 pounds together trying to push a 300-pound guy. You want to move <laughs> him into the second level. You come off the block. You go to a linebacker. They're they're getting almost pushed back or not or just you know stagnant, not moving anywhere on a combo block, which wow. is beyond bad. Beecham Beecham is a terrible run blocker. Shell has been like I said, okay, and Winters at this point he he's really bad too. So the the Jets offensive line has been really, really bad. And you look at, you know, the Jets quarterback situation with McCown, you want to, or, you know, McCown, a veteran, you know, a below average guy, or even any young guy, you really want to, you know, lean on the running game. And that's the Jets' biggest problem right now is they can't lean on the running game. Um, they just abandon it at times because they're getting, you know, a, a yard or two on every run. You can't keep going to it. So they've been abandoning it, and, then, and they're having to rely on McCown too much, who's been doing okay at times. But you're making McCown drop back to like 50 times against the Patriots, or plus 50 times against the Patriots. You're going to see why he's a he's a German better quarterback who hasn't really stuck with the team. He makes mistakes. Well, that was so going to be just running game. Well, that was going to be my really hurt him. That was going to be my next question to you because the, your offense has kind of morphed this season. You guys tried to be a rushing team last year. You were a rushing team that could throw. With Ryan Fitzpatrick under center, you guys were a team that could outside of last year, but that first year with Ryan Fitz under center. You were a team that could spread teams out and then run the football. And you guys found ways when you were 10-6 and six to run it with authority. Well, now you've lost the ability to run the ball. You have to pass. In the last two losses, this is what I've seen. Josh McCown has finished each one of the losses with a higher QBR than his opponent. His quarterback rating has been higher than the team that you're playing. And he has, in your last three losses, he has two performances where his quarterback rating was over 100. Yet you lose every one of them. I, here's what I see. I see the fact that Josh McCown came into this season with a six and what was it, Chris? Six and twenty-three record as a starter. He's already increased his career win total by thirty-three percent. So you guys, he's he found some early success that I didn't expect him to have because his his record as a starter is terrible. At the same time, one of the things I notice when I look at his passing charts is I don't see anything deep. I, I shouldn't say anything, but. It's not often that he's taking deep shots. Instead, it's a lot of dink and dunk. That's why your boy, Austin Safarian Jenkins, a tight end, that's why he's really come on lately is because he's looking to that intermediate area of the field. Now, I can tell that probably a part of it's because he doesn't have the time from the offensive line to, to let routes develop. I mean, you have fast receivers with Robbie Anderson, who's a speed threat. You've got um, Austin, well, you've got my boy, Darius Stewart, who... I think he can be he can be a useful weapon on an offense. He can generate he proved in college he could generate yards after the catch, but it hasn't so much translated to the NFL yet. Probably because he went to Alabama. Alabama's good in college, it's the pros. All I I guess I just gotta ask, so the what big is it, what is it with your passing attack that you guys have decided to just focus on that short intermediate area of the field? Because 
with a weapon like Robbie Anderson, I would think there has to be some play calling you guys could scheme up to try to attack defenses deep and kind of loosen the box. Yeah, well, I, I, just, I just don't really know if Josh McCown has the capability of throwing a, a fantastic deep ball all the time, and obviously the Jets are running a a West Coast system, and West Coast system is just predicated on three- to five-step drops. When you're running three- to five-step drops, you're not going to run, you know, a 12-yard step route. So the general basis, okay, well, I'm taking a three-step drop. The, the receiver has six steps to get open. Okay, if I take a five-step <laughs> drop, you have ten reps, you have ten steps to get open. So you're going to take some a lot of shorter routes, a lot of slants, um, curls, crossing routes, you know, snag routes, mm-hmm. that type of thing. And so and with the occasional deep shots, either curse on a nine route or a post, and then obviously Robbie Anderson gets a couple of deep shots every game because he's a blazer, um, even though he hasn't really developed his underneath routes and being able to fight for the ball, 50-50 type of stuff coming back to the ball. But regardless, he is a very good deep threat at this point um, in his career. And if that's all he turns out to be, that's fine with me. Um, but the, the, problem, the problem is, too, obviously, like I talked about before, with the offensive line, you don't want to take a lot of seven-step drops if the offensive line can't hold for more than yeah. two, three seconds. So no. um, there, there is, he does have a high completion percentage, and obviously that is because the Jets do work a lot of short and intermediate routes. And I don't want you know Bills fans to get it um, misunder- misunderstood that he. A lot of people say, oh well, you know, he only has a high completion percentage because he throws really, really short routes. He actually, I think, he averages right. He's right in the twenty range with. Um, you know, yards per attempt. So he does throw it a little bit more, but yeah, deep, deep shots, not really. It's a lot of intermediate short stuff. Um, the receivers we have to, it's not really, uh, too good. So <laughs> trying to get them a lot of crossing routes, rub routes, stuff that you can get over, um, open over the middle. And they're losing a big guy in, in the middle with Jeremy Curley, um, who's a guy who's very reliable on third down, a guy who we don't want to see have maybe two to four catches a game, but every single of those two to four catches were, you know, third and seven uh, conversion on a, on a drag or a slant or a dig route, whatever it may be, really reliable hands. And maybe now we'll see your guys' boy or Drew, Drew's boy and our Darius Stewart because our Darius Stewart's a guy who we saw out of Alabama run a lot of jet sweeps, sweeps and screens and stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, be able to use his legs after the catch and his physicality after the catch. He's only been playing about 10 to 15 snaps a game, so hopefully he sees the, the field a little bit more and gets a little bit more um, chance to, you know, run with the ball in his hand. But the Jets' offense, you know, honestly, we, some of these fans were thinking that the Jets' offense was going to be one of the worst in the entire league. And, you know, it's not great, obviously, like that. But the Jets are, you know, they're putting up a decent amount of points. Um, you saw in the no. Dolphins game, they put up mm. they 20, 21 points. Yeah, so it, it, the problem is to finishing. And they can't run the ball, so they're passing – passing the ball which obviously is taking um you know stopping the clock which hurts them and penalties too they're i think they are actually at this point in time i'm not sure if anything changed um on monday night football but i don't believe so they are the most highly penalized team in the entire league and when you're looking at a team who's supposed to be one in 15 two and 14 and you already have a severe lack of talent on the team and then you're gonna you're gonna um topple that with the fact that they're gonna get a lot of penalties a game it's, it's hard to overcome so that miami game that we were talking about uh, penalties just killed them. Buster screen killed them. So they are a group who is looking up. They obviously have a lot of work to do, but you know the offense has been okay um, well, at, at this point. On that side, of the, so, so on that topic, before we change gears, I got to ask game specific stuff. I know you guys over at Jet Nation are working on this for this week for your show this week. What do you foresee the Jets' plan of attack on offense being coming into this game? I mean, when you consider the strengths of the Buffalo Bills, I mean, you look at the, you look at how often we're taking the ball away. 
That's one thing that your team hasn't been able to stop doing is turning the ball over. Our defense is really turnover hungry. And so this short and intermediate passing game doesn't seem to really, it almost would seem to play directly into it. What do you foresee that your plan of attack on offense being on Thursday night? Well, it's going to be it's going to be tough. You guys are obviously a, a very good defense at this point um, in the season. I think you guys are number three or four in, in um, yards per carry allowed um, to oppose to opposing teams' rushing games. So we're not going to be able to run the ball, and you guys, that's for damn sure. Um, even though Darius isn't there anymore, but still, regardless, you guys are a pretty good um, rushing defense in this in this league. And Tre'Davious White's obviously playing very very well too. So you might say that the Jets, you know, can't go short intermediate, and they probably can't. But honestly, that's probably their best, their best, um, their best plan they can do because Josh McCown's not a guy who could. He'll take his occasional two, three, four, five deep shots a game, um, and hit and hit people, you know, on out routes and and comeback routes and stuff like that. But it's not his strength. A lot of times we see McCown get picked off. I don't know if you guys watched that Patriots game right before the end of the first half. He's trying to throw mm-hmm. like a 15-yard out oh, route yeah. to Robbie Anderson. He just doesn't have the arm strength to get it there. Nope. So. He can't hit guys outside the numbers. We're not going to be able to run the ball. So really, their best plan of action is going to be what they've been doing. Um, like I said, a lot, a lot of shorter routes over the middle, snags, drags, um, that type of stuff. And maybe um, a thing that I want to see from the Jets is them try to use, you know, air quotes, my boy at Austin Sectarian Jenkins, where I think I tweeted about him like once or twice, and then suddenly I just get Snapchats about how much I love the guy from you guys. Um, <laughs> But no, and, and honestly, he has been probably the Jets' best tight end since Dustin Keller. Dustin Keller, you know, obviously it's not a, a great accomplishment because you've had guys like Brandon Bostic and Kellen Davis, who's the worst NFL player I've ever seen, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I would like to see, see them use him down the seam more because he's been pretty reliable when they have looked at him down the seam the very little times they've had, they have. So maybe we see more of that. But, you know, I, I just don't think we really match up against this defense well. So there's nowhere I could really point to on paper. <laughs> Um, or in the game plan, say this is where they attack them because they really can't attack a good defense anywhere at this point. Well, I'll tell you what, that has to make everybody everybody here on the uh, Bills side of the ball feel a little bit better. Now, switching gears to the defensive side of the ball, you touched on something. You said something earlier, and I have a quote that I want you to hear. Now, I know that you're not a big post, post-game press conference guy. You know, you prefer to watch film and see these I listen to it just because every now and again a player or a coach or somebody says something that's interesting. I mean, most of it's horseshit. But you're talking about a lack lack of consistency. That strikes me as the Jets' problem over the course of the last couple weeks here. And in the last week's postgame, after you're kind of, you know, come from, you know, again, you gave up a lead. You had it. You gave it up. You didn't get it back. And the other team wins on your turf. This is what Leonard Williams said in the locker room during his post-game presser. Yeah, that's what's really frustrating is that we put so much emphasis on it. You know, uh, even in our defensive meeting today, uh, you know, we were like, let's put together a complete game. We either start fast and, and don't finish or or uh, we start slow and try to finish last minute at the end. And uh, uh, that's something that we need to do is just put together a complete game. And, uh, I think finishing is the biggest part because, you know, offense came out and scored the first drive. Defense came out and got three and out. You know, like even the second half, defense came out and got three, three and out. It's like we, we do all the right things and then last minute, uh, you know, give it away. Leonard Williams from whatever the New York, New York Jets website is. <laughs> NewYorkJets.com. So, Joe. What do you think about that right there? I mean, this is a defensive player of yours essentially pointing to the fact that whether it's defense, whether it's offense, whether it's the linebackers, whether it's the D linemen, you guys just are so wildly inconsistent across 
units across formations. What do you feel about that being a Jets fan who's watched your team through seven games? Oh, well, it's 100% true. And you look at the, the last three games, their three-game losing skid. You know, the Miami Dolphins, they they opened up, they scored 21 points in the first half. The New England Patriots, they opened up 14 nothing in the first quarter. The Falcons, it was 17-10. to 10, And then, of course, right before half, they let them drive down their throats and get a field goal. So it was 13 or, or 17 to 13 going into half. But, yeah, the Jets haven't really been able to close out games. And the problem um, with that is what we just talked about with the Jets running game. You know, running game, you're going to try to kill the clock, but when you can't run the ball and you're passing the ball, you're, you're giving the offense plenty of time to, or the opposing offense, to, you know, plenty of time to come out and have plenty of opportunities to try to drive down the field and open up and score points. The New England Patriots before half, there was probably a five-minute period where we gave the Patriots the ball back at least three or four times, and you can't give Tom Brady the ball that many times. Same thing with Matt Ryan. A big problem, so that's the problem with the offense, is the running game, can't take the, clock, uh, the time off the clock. And then you look at the defense with Leonard Williams and that pass rush. The Jets don't have a true outside linebacker. They really haven't since John Abraham. Um, a lot of their outside linebackers have been run-stuffing types, Calvin Pace type of guys. They can't really get to the quarterbacks. So these these quarterbacks are having all day. They just tee off on you pocket. guys. Exactly. And yep. if you watch that, and I haven't done the Falcons game review yet. I'm probably going to put it up tomorrow. But if you look at that game, there was times where Matt Ryan was literally standing in the pocket for five, six seconds. The same <sighs> thing with Brady. The same See, thing that'll with murder Cutler. you. That'll kill you. Oh, in the NFL. Exactly. It doesn't matter whether you're playing Tom Brady or Tyrod Taylor. You you give a quarterback at the pro level five seconds, and there's going to be a completion made. Whether it's to a check down, whether it's down the field, God help you if someone's coverage broke down or they got confused. Like Those are the plays yep. that kill a defense. And to hear that you guys are having those kind of struggles, I gotta, I'm not going to lie, I don't feel much sympathy for you. <laughs> don't feel a lot of sympathy. It makes me feel, makes me feel pretty good. No, so, well, you play it twice a year, but when you can't rush the passer, you have no outside linebacker to really get the job done. And the middle of your defense is so weak, one with Buster Springsteen in the slot, so a lot of guys are running these routes over the middle. Um, he really hurts. Then, like I said before, you have a ton of penalties, the most penalized team in the entire league, so you're shooting yourself in the foot. Either when you're trying, you're about to get the, you know, off the field. There's been plenty of times this year, you know, third and seven, either going either way, you either convert the first down or you stop the opposing team for getting a first down, and then it's a penalty. Okay, the team gets the first down, and you shoot yourself in the foot. Uh, so the Jets are shooting yeah. themselves in the foot. You can't rush. You can't rush the passer, like you said, five six seconds. And Drew, that's with that's with good corners. You can't be given five six seconds. Now look at who the Jets have. They have Morris Claiborne, who's been he's been a you know a, an okay number one. Um, like I said, Jets fans are probably rating him a little bit too highly. He's gotten beat up quite a bit, um, but the quarterback just couldn't find him. So you're playing guys like Jay Cutler, like. Kaiser, like Kevin Hogan, um, like Blake Bortles. So he hasn't been getting a little on the stat sheet, but he's okay. But then past that, you have you know, guys like Roberts, guys like Screen, um, guys like Nelson, who they just brought in. So you can't rush a passer, and you can't cover for long. So that's why the defense is really, really hurting themselves. And then those spot times where they do get off the field or about to get off the field, there's an you know, illegal hand to the face or a defensive holding or a, a pass interference. So that stuff really – you know, starts to show up in the, in the second half. Now, the last defensive question that I want to ask you, it starts with your run defense, and it's a little bit about your linebackers. Now, in six of your eight games this season, the New York Jets have allowed more than 100 yards rushing to the opposing team. I mean, you're talking about Miami is the only team that you guys held, and after watching what Baltimore just did to them, I don't know how impressive that feat is. So i got to ask, is there any one specific thing that's driving this? 
Or I, and I mean, I guess I, I guess what I want to know is this: as a team that is predominantly a run-first team, we prefer to lean on the running game. Is there certain kinds of runs or certain kind of play designs and formations that you think maybe expose or hurt your defense more than others? Yeah, I would say what you guys do exactly, which is the you know, a lot of the outside zones and those types of runs, just zone running in general, because I feel like zone running is you know you're waiting for the defense to react and you're either going to you know bang the run, bounce the run, um, or just hit it right up the middle. And you know a lot of our linebackers, we saw it the first game, and you know Lee and Davis have improved more um, since that game, and they've been actually looking okay in the run game, um, but. Playing against a zone running team really takes a lot of patience. Like I said, you're going to either hit it to the outside, hit it, um, you're going to cut it upfield, they're going to hit it right in the hole that it was designed for in a zone type of running scheme. It takes a lot of discipline. You have to stay in your gaps. You have to maintain them. You, you can't try to cut backside and get to the running back. You can't try to, you're not going to over pursue and try to guess where he's going because then a guy like Shade McCoy, who is, you know, top five running back in the NFL still probably at this point. He's, he's gonna burn you. He's gonna he's gonna cut to the to the back, uh, backside. He's gonna cut to the outside. Whatever he has to do. Oh no! Yeah, so his vision is guy. His vision is incredible, yeah, yeah. and that's. I mean, we talked to Kyle Smith from a uh, former host of AFC East Pros podcast before our game week one, and that's what he said was that you guys have a pair of linebackers that are just never where they need to be. They they're very much capable of over pursuing runs, and so that leads me to my next question. Darren Lee, now you just said it. You said that he seems like he's improved, at least in the running game. I watched him get abused by Gronkowski in the um, Patriots game. Now, I've hated Darren Lee as a pro prospect for as long as I can remember. Here's a quote that I gave before the draft because I didn't want him on my roster. The guy is Keith Ellison 2.0. He can suck my ass. That is a quote from Drew Gear pre-draft. I hated Darren Lee. And one of the things I saw was that he doesn't, for everyone's talk about him being a pass cover guy, he, he's not physical enough to hang with big tight ends. And at the same time, in the run game, he's small and he takes strange angles sometimes. To this point in the season, where does Lee stand and how do you think that these guys are going to fare on Thursday night? Well, like I said, in the run game, I think they're going to get beat up a little bit. And I said Lee has improved the run game a little bit. And that's been the last two or three weeks. But the beginning of the season, if you guys asked me this question a couple of weeks ago, uh, I would just completely tee off on him. Like I said, he has improved <laughs> a little bit, but he, like you said, he's over pursuing. He tries to, he tries to, um, get underneath, you know, the, the play side and, and make a really crazy athletic play, or he tries to match up one on one with a guard with physicality. He gets trucked over. <laughs> he just gets run over. A couple times. He gets pushed over like a it toddler is. at the playground. Just, no, you get out of the way. Uh, I'm going to tag you guys on a video on, on Twitter. He, he actually gets, um, pancaked by a wide receiver. So oh no! He, you can't do that. Yeah. Oh, no, not if you're a, not if you're a linebacker. No. <laughs> yeah. So he's been he's been bad in the run game. He's definitely been improving. He's actually been fighting off guards a little bit. He's bouncing off of them instead of getting kind of sucked into their block, getting around with athleticism. And there are some times, a couple, you know, times this game even, you'll see him shoot through the B gap, C gap, A gap, wherever, wherever it may be and get a tackle for loss. But then there's also another time where he'll over-pursue or miss a tackle in the open field or, or slip, and that's only in the run game. Now, when you go to the pass game, and this is what, you know, when Jeff, when we drafted this guy before I really watched the film on the guy, it's okay, well, yeah, you know, look at this, you know, 4-4-40 guy, super athletic, he's going to be able to cover, but he is terrible in, in coverage, whoever he's covering, whether it be zone or man, 
a lot of times in man, like you said, the physicality in their routes. There was a time, I believe it was against Miami, um, where the tight end ran, I think it was Fasano, ran like a 15-yard dig, and he tried to get physical with them on the route stem. He tried to get physical, he trips, he falls, and then he's wide, and then Fasano's wide open. He's like five yards um, with nobody around him because he <laughs> fell. We see him fall a lot. And when you look at zone coverage, he's really, really undisciplined in zone where he either, like there's times where people are crossing, let's just say on a crossing route, guys crossing over into, into his zone, and he sees the guy crossing it and the quarterback about to throw to him, but instead of you know sticking with his guy in his zone, he'll stare at the quarterback and just let the, the wide receiver, tight end, whoever it may be, running back, get right behind him. Um, he's, it's he's a cardinal really, like, sin for a linebacker in coverage, which is why I'm really glad that he's wearing your jersey and not mine. <laughs> yeah, and even even this game against the the Dolphins, uh, Kenny Stills is on a drag or over the middle, and he just completely gets sucked into Matt Moore's eyes he, instead of you know checking his zone, seeing who's coming into it and getting in position to play the ball. If it's thrown there. He's staring at the quarterback, and then the ball is just completely right over his head. So his zone coverage is really bad. When you're asking this guy to react to things, he's, he's terrible. Now, if you're going to ask him, okay, go get the quarterback, blitz through the C-gap, blitz around the edge, um, then he'll, he'll be a little bit better. But when you ask him to process information, a lot of information in that you know three- to five-second um, you know, time that a play lasts in the NFL, it, it gets ugly. Oh, my God. So – We've heard a lot about both sides of the ball. Now I got to ask you, as we always kind of wrap this thing up, predictions. Give me your, what you predict to be the final score Thursday night. Ah, uh, uh, this hurts. I, I I predict the Jets lose actually a lot, so it's not really going to hurt. Um, I'll say twenty-seven Bills to the Jets sixteen. I'll give you guys an eleven-point um, win over the Jets. I just I just don't think we're going to be able to handle your guys. Um, running game, and I don't think um, on the opposite side of the ball that we're going to be able to run the ball on, on your defense. Chris, what do you got? 31 to 13, Buffalo. 31 to 13, Jesus. I'm going to be a little more conservative. I still think the Bills win the game. I'm going to call it 24 17. I think that this game's closer than people realize it's going to be. Got, Joe, thank you so much for coming on tonight, kind of walking us through all of this. I really appreciate it. Go ahead and one, one more time. The website and where people can find you on Twitter. Uh, JetNation.com, easy. Twitter is JoeRB31. Do a film breakdown of every single week. If you know, you're a Bills fan, you want to get more familiar with the AFC, so I put about 50 plays out and describe exactly what happens. Um, and then my show's Twitter is JetNationRadio. Joe Blewett filling in for Kyle Smith, who unfortunately couldn't be with us tonight. So grateful to have Joe fill in on such short notice with some great jet insight. Man, I just, I, I tell you, I, I'm really looking forward to Thursday's game because I think that we have a chance to really set the bar as high as it's been in years. I'm looking forward to you drinking during the week again. <laughs> I'm taking the day after the game off. I'm taking it off because I can't, I'm not going to be in the shape to go into the office. I'm just not going to be in shape for that. Folks, first and foremost, we got to give some shout outs. Wise Guys Pizzeria in Buffalo, right here, South Buffalo, Seneca Street. They are the premier pizzeria in the South Buffalo, West Seneca area. If you live out here, there's no there's no excuse for you not ordering their food. We do it every week. I'm plugging them not because I'm paid to, but because I, I can't excuse not eating their food. They're fantastic. Their customer service is excellent, and their owner's a gem. 
www.wiseguysbuffalo.com. You can even order online. Pay for your order and just come and pick it up. Check them out, Wise Guys Pizzeria. And then check out Joe Blewett's website, www.jetnation.com. You heard him plug his Twitter handle. You can find us and Twitter at rockpilereport.com and on Facebook, facebook.com slash therockpilereport. We need to touch on one thing before we get on out of here real quick. And what's that? Real quick. This is week nine. We're halfway through Beer Watch. Beer, Beer Watch. Watch. We are at a total of 162 between what's on the board, what's on the table right now. All right. So that number will change. One, well, 162 times two would give you your projection. Yeah. So if we multiply that, we're at th- that puts us at 324. <laughs> Which Alex Warmall, three twenty four prediction. Oh. We're on pace for Warmall's three twenty four. Alex, you English son of a bitch. We love you. We got. We have to drink more. And and in fantasy football, Chris just lost to Alex Wormall from across the pond. Well, actually, no, he beat him on a last second Monday Night Football effort. And now Alex owes Chris a six pack of beer via PayPal. Get me some beer, <laughs> bitch. <laughs> Guys, we got to get out of here. It's been a long night. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Kruger, and this has been the Rock Pile Report. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine. Stop noticing. But you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.